Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 14 from the book Jacob the Shazer, Forgive Your Enemies, by Janet and Jeff Binge, part of the Christian Heroes Then and Now series by YWAM Publishing, Chapter 14, A New Beginning. Jacob, this is President Watson, his sister Helen said as the two of them greeted a middle-aged man with caring eyes. Jake smiled shyly. The two men shook hands, and President Watson said, Your sister tells me that you are interested in attending Seattle Pacific College. Is that right? Jake did not quite know what to say. How could he explain to the president that he wasn't sure what kind of student he would make? Yes, he did want to be a missionary to Japan, and yes, he did know he would have to get some qualifications, but he had graduated from a tiny rural high school nearly 14 years ago before and had spent most of World War II in solitary confinement in a Japanese military prison. As a result, he sometimes found it difficult to get his thoughts together and nearly impossible to speak them in the right order. He replied, I'm thinking about making a slow start, maybe taking a class or two next semester to see whether or not I can fit in. President Watson took Jake's arm. Are you sure that's a good idea? He asked with a frown. If God has called you to Japan, the sooner you get trained and over there, the better. The door is wide open now, but it might not always be that way. Jake nodded. He had the same thought, but how, he wondered, could he settle into a rigorous college life just two months after being released from prison? Don't worry, President Watson assured seeming to read Jake's thoughts. There are plenty of people here to help you along. And besides, since you've been through military basic training, you already have some credits. That will lighten the load during the first year if you want. He looked directly at Jake. The best thing is to jump straight in before you get sidetracked. The semester started two weeks ago, but we have a place for you, and the other students could help you catch up. It wouldn't be too difficult. I know everyone would welcome you here and do whatever they can to get you started. Jake took a deep breath. He felt as though he were about to climb onto a roller coaster and strap himself in for the ride. Apparently, President Watson and Helen, who served as Mr. Watson's secretary, had talked the situation out and believed that he could do it. As Jake thought about it, something clicked inside him. Jake felt a surge of confidence. All right, he said. If you think I can do this, sign me up. I'll go home and talk to my parents and be back to start college tomorrow. Jake drove home from Seattle to Salem in a state of shock. Only three months before, he had been so ill in prison that he thought he was going to die. Now, as impossible as it seemed, he had just enrolled in college. The GI Bill would cover the cost of his college tuition and textbooks, and Jake felt confident that God was guiding him forward. Back home, Jake's mother was delighted when she learned of his new plan, though she made him promise that he would come home often to visit. She explained that she loved to hear his voice around the house and watch him eat and enjoy himself. The next morning, Jake packed up his few belongings and headed back to Seattle Pacific College. When he reached the campus, discovered that news of his enrollment had traveled fast. All the 
Other students knew his name and who he was, and many of them came up to shake the hand of a Dulo Raider and welcome him to the college. This new celebratory status took a little getting used to for Jake. He wanted to blend in and be just another student, but he knew that would not be possible. For one thing, every weekend Jake found himself out talking at Youth for Christ rallies or church services. Sometimes he teamed up at these events with the college singers from Seattle Pacific College. At other times he went to them alone. Although other students at Seattle Pacific College were usually asked to deliver sermons at meetings, everyone seemed to want Jake to tell the story of his captivity at the hands of the Japanese. At first, Jake stumbled over his words and spoke in a monotone, but the crowds who came to hear him didn't mind. They took into account the lack of social contact he had suffered during the war, and when he ran out of things to say, Jake would recite many chapters of scripture from memory. The crowds loved this as well because Jake spoke with such conviction, yet aware of his need to become a better speaker, Jake enrolled in a speech class at college on the USS Hornet before taking off to bomb Japan. Jimmy Doolittle had promised the men that he would throw a party for them once the mission was over. It had taken a while, but now that the war was over, Doolittle decided it was time for the party. In the fall of 1945, he arranged for the surviving Doolittle Raiders to gather for a party and a reunion at the McFadden a dual bill hotel in Miami, Florida. Jake, though, was too busy with studying and speaking engagements to attend the reunion. Interest in the exploits of the Doolittle Raiders was further kept alive in February 1946 when the U.S. government brought a troop of former Japanese prison guards and military officials to tr uh, trial on a number of charges relating to their treatment of the captured Doolittle Raiders. The trial was head, uh, held in Shanghai and Chase Nielsen returned to China to testify at the trial. Jake was not surprised that Chase was the one called on to testify at the trial. Throughout their time in prison, Chase had been driven by a strong desire to survive in order to be able to tell what happened to the captured Doolittle Raiders during their internment and to see that justice was brought and that those who had mistreated them were brought to trial and made to pay for their actions. Jake had no doubt that his former tormentors would receive a fair trial, unlike the Japanese trial of the captured Doolittle Raiders. As the trial progressed, Jake found himself thinking about those prison guards on trial who had shown him kindness during his imprisonment. He wrote letters to the tribunal uh, trying the guards in Shanghai and asked for uh, leniency for the men. He explained that they had all been part of a system during the war that they could do little about. He was relieved when he learned that none of those on trial for the treatment of the Doolittle Raiders received the death penalty. Instead, the convicted guards were sentenced to imprisonment with hard labor for periods between five and nine years. Jake was glad that he had not been asked to go to Shanghai to testify at the trial. His focus was now on getting his degree as quickly as possible. 
Jake did not have difficulty with his coursework at Seattle Pacific College. He made good grades by working hard and spending long hours in the study hall. It was there that he met a junior named Florence um, Matheny. Florence was a vivacious woman and a dedicated student. Like Jake, she was a few years older than the average student at Seattle Pacific College. She had already graduated with a two-year degree in Iowa and had taught at a small public school during the war years. Then in the summer of 1945, Florence felt that God wanted her in full-time Christian service as a missionary, though she was not sure where. She also felt that God was directing her to attend Seattle Pacific College, and so she enrolled in the school. The more time Jake spent with Florence, the more he felt relaxed around her, until he finally asked her to go with him to a Youth for Christ rally, where he was to be the featured speaker. Florence agreed, and from that time on, Jake and Florence were constant companions. One day, Florence told Jake that several weeks before starting at Seattle Pacific, she had picked up a newspaper and read an article about the four Dulo Raiders who had just been released from 40 months of incarceration in a Japan a Japanese military prison. She also read how one of these men had become a Christian while in jail and how he wanted to return to Japan as a missionary after he had attended a Christian college. She had mused to herself as she read the article what a coincidence it would be if the man chose to attend Seattle Pacific College and she got to shake hands with him. Jake and Florence laughed together over the incident. Not only had Florence gotten to shake the man's hand, now she was dating him. In May 1946, just before the end of the school year, Jake and Florence were secretly engaged. Soon afterward, Florence told a few close friends of the engagement, but asked them not to tell anyone. The plan worked well until the end of the year college outing, which included a ferry trip up to Victoria, British Columbia, and a picnic in the seaside park there. Jake's mother and niece came along for the trip, though his mother had no idea that he and Florence were a couple. As the ferry pulled away from the dock and headed for Victoria, Jake's mother offered him some motherly advice. Jackie, why don't you date that Florence gal? I think you two would be good together. Uh, Jake uh, looked down, downcast at the, s the suggestion and said, Why, Mom, she's really popular. She wouldn't have anything to do with me. Oh, yes, she would, his mother replied, poking him in the chest as she spoke. You just don't think enough of yourself. You just have to march up to her and ask her out. Jake nodded. I might try that if you think it would work, he said, trying to hold back a smile. An hour later, as they sailed into Victoria Harbor, the ferry boat's klaxon, uh, klaxon uh, sounded a voice. Um, uh, sounded a voice came over the speaker system. "Hello, we have a special announcement to make on this spring trip," said the female voice, which Jake recognized immediately as Florence's roommate's voice. "We would all like to congratulate Jake DeShazer and Florence Matheny on their engagement." 
A loud cheer went up from everyone on board. Jake's mother turned to him in mock indignation. Jackie, you knew this all the time and you didn't tell me? Jake chuckled. Three months later, on August 29, 1946, Jake and Florence were married in a free Methodist church in uh, Grisham, Oregon. Florence's uh, former pastor performed the ceremony. It was a small wedding. There were still a lot of shortages uh, following the war, and Jake could not buy a white shirt for the event. Instead, he had to borrow one from his stepfather and wore it with the same brown suit that he often wore to speaking engagements. Florence wore a white dress and carried a, carried a big bunch of yellow roses. The wedding reception of cake and punch was supposed to have been held outside, but when it started to rain, one of the church women offered her house as an alternative, and the wedding party walked there from the church. Following the wedding, Jake and Florence drove back to Toddville, Iowa, Florence's hometown, where they received a warm welcome from Florence's parents and sisters and brother as they drove along. Uh, Jake and Florence made plans for their future. Florence had a call to be a missionary, but she had not known where the Lord was calling her. Now she knew for sure that her place was beside Jake in Japan. It was an exciting prospect for them both. At the end of World War II, American General Douglas MacArthur had been appointed Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers in Japan. Now MacArthur was calling for churches in the United States to send as many missionaries to Japan as possible. The country had a religious vacuum, and MacArthur believed that Christian missionaries were necessary to fill that void by bringing hope to the people, along with a new set of values necessary for the new emerging Japanese society. As a result, Jake was eager to get to Japan as soon as possible. He and Florence discussed how he could complete the summer study program and graduate in two years instead of three years of study. Uh, he had uh, left the cl class at Seattle Pacific soon started up again for the new academic year. This time, Jake and Florence shared a small duplex on the edge of campus. They were a happy couple, working together for a common goal. As Jake continued to be a sought-after speaker at churches and youth rallies, Florence would accompany him to his engagements as, and tell the audience a little about her own call to the mission field. By the end of March 1947, the couple received some good news. Florence was expecting a baby in the fall. Jake was going to be a father. Florence took time off from college to have the baby, but they worked out a study, study plan so that she and Jake could graduate together in the summer of 1948. Paul Edward DeShazer was born on October 31, 1947. He was a big round baby with the same dimple on his chin as his mother. At nearly 35 years of age, Jake was a proud father. He marveled that he had such a wonderful wife, and now he was a real family man as well. Jake and Florence were members of the Free Methodist denomination. Normally, the Free Methodists required two years of home service before new graduates could leave for a foreign, foreign mission field. However, the 
the nomination made an exception in the case of the DeShazers. Everyone agreed that the sooner Jake and Florence got to work in Japan, the better it would be for the DeShazer family. The rest of the year passed in a whirl of study and making concrete plans to live in Japan. They read all they could on post-war conditions in Japan. Things sounded bleak there, and they were warned that they would not be able to find a proper house to live in. They would also have to take with them everything they needed for four years of missionary service. The United States was still experiencing post-war shortages of its own, and it became quite a feat for Jake and Florence to gather everything the family would need to live in a foreign country for any length of time. Florence and Jake wrote and rewrote lists of household goods that they would need, blankets, sheets, towels, plates, and pots, personal items such as clothing, shoes, and toiletries, and other items such as furniture, hot plates, an oven, boxes of canned food, milk powder, and other uh, staples. Many of their friends and family members donated items on the list. Soon the DeShazer's living room had been transformed into a packing station as crates and barrels of belongings were sealed and labeled ready for the trip to Japan. During this busy period, Jake did take the time to write down his experiences for the Bible Meditation League. Uh, he often spoke at the organization's uh, meetings, and the leaders asked him to write about his experiences so they could be published in tract form. Jake could not have imagined the impact the few paragraphs he penned would have on his future. The families visited, visited Jake's parents as often as they could. Jake's mother loved to dote on Paul, but as the time grew near for the family to depart for Japan, some of Jake's brothers and sisters became concerned. They could not see why Jake and Florence had to go all the way to Japan when there was plenty of missionary work to be done at home. Jake's sister Julia was particularly upset about how he had been mistreated by the Japanese. She could not believe that he was going back to live among them. Meanwhile, Jake's brother Glenn had recently bought a large tract of land in Madras, Oregon, and was irrigating the land for the first time. Land in Madras was still cheap, and irrigated lambs, uh, lands held the promise of good returns. Glenn urged Jake to buy some of the land of his own in Madras, but Jake refused to spend a cent on buying land in Oregon. Even though he had some savings left and the land looked like a good investment, he was afraid that owning land would distract him from his missionary calling. Above all, Jake wanted to keep his focus strong. In June 1948, Jake and Florence DeShazer graduated from Seattle Pacific College with both receiving a Bachelor of Arts degree with a major in missions. Although they both still had some coursework to finish the requirements of their degrees over the summer, Jake was proud of the fact that he, that he had worked uh, hard and earned a four-year degree in just three years. At the end of the summer, after completing their coursework, Jake and Florence spent time traveling around the United States telling people about the 
great need for the gospel that existed in China. Uh, then it was time for Jake, Florence, and Paul to leave. The family traveled to San Francisco, where on December 14, 1948, they boarded the USS General Meigs for the trip to Japan. As the ship made its way down San Francisco Bay and under the Golden Gate Bridge, Jake could not help but think of the time six and a half years before when he had stood on the deck of the USS Hornet and watched as they passed under the fog-shrouded Golden Gate Bridge. Then he had been an angry young bombarder off on a daring mission to make Japan pay for its raid on Pearl Harbor. After the ship had left San Francisco Bay behind, Jake made his way to his cabin and wrote, This time I am go not going as a bombarder, but I am going as a missionary. Now I have love and good intentions toward Japan. How much better it is to go out to conquer evil with the gospel of peace. Next time, chapter 15, Back to Japan. And you can find this book and many others from the series by going to www.ywampublishing.com and their phone number is 1-800-922-2143. Again, join me next time for chapter 15, Back to Japan. From the book Jacob DeShazer, Forgive Your Enemies, by Janet and Jeff Binge, part of the Christian Heroes Then and Now series by YWAM Publishing.